this morning, Luke chapter number 22 is where we'll begin in just a second. Luke in chapter number 22, and it is good to see you guys this morning. Had a great men's breakfast yesterday. I think we ended up with over 70 guys here. You say there's going to be bacon, and they show up, man, so that was great, but a great chance for us to gather together and, and uh, uh, also remember the sacrifice and, and uh, bravery and courage of their men and women in the service, and this weekend we want to make sure that we're aware of and showing our appreciation to those. If you're in the room and you served in some way in our uh, armed forces, would you slip your hand up really quick? I won't make you stand up if you're in the room. I want to thank those guys, men and women, that served. And it's not lost on us that the opportunity we have to, get out of, to gather this morning without any sort of fear of uh, governmental control or someone coming here shutting this down, that we could sing as loud as we want for as long as we want. That is something we don't want to take for granted this morning, and so we're so very thankful for your sacrifice for that. Luke chapter 22 is where we'll begin. Luke chapter 22, verse number 39. I'm going to read down together through verse 53. going to catch you up a little bit. Uh, Jesus is now on the final night before what will be his crucifixion. This is the point where he just he's going to leave the the dinner scene where we saw him celebrate Passover with his disciples the past couple of weeks. And he's going to head into the Garden of Gethsemane. The Garden of Gethsemane is really just an olive tree garden um, where they would press olives to create and make olive oil. And this is where Jesus is really going to be pressed, is here in this garden. And we'll see what I think is the strength of the Savior as we make our way through it. Okay, verse 39, the Bible says, And Jesus came out and went, and as he was gone to the Mount of Olives, and his disciples also followed him. And when he was at the place, he said unto them, pray that you would enter not into temptation. And he was withdrawn from them about a stone's cast and kneeled down and prayed, saying, Father, if thou be willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but thine be done. And there appeared an angel unto him from heaven, strengthening him. And being in agony, he prayed more earnestly, and his sweat was as it were great drops of blood falling down to the ground. And when he rose up from prayer and was come to his disciples, he found them sleeping for sorrow. And he said unto them, Why sleep ye? Rise and pray, lest you would enter into temptation. And while he yet spake, behold, a multitude, and he that was called Judas, one of the twelve, went before them and drew near unto Jesus to kiss him. But Jesus said unto him, Judas, betrayest thou the Son of Man with a kiss? And when they which were about him saw what would follow, they said unto him, Lord, shall we smite with the sword? Remember the swords from a couple weeks ago, right? This is the chance. We've got our swords. And one of them, we know from the other gospels, is Peter, smote the servant of the high priest and cut off his right ear. And Jesus answered and said, suffer you this far. And he touched his ear and healed him. Then Jesus said unto the chief priest and captains of the temple and the elders which were come to him. Be ye come out as against a thief with swords and staves. When I was daily with you in the temple, you stretched forth no hands against me. But this is your hour and the power of darkness. Strength is most clearly seen when something's being used or tested. For example, we see the strength of a rope, right? If you are a rock climber, right? If you enjoy rappelling, you test the strength of the rope when you finally put all your weight on it, right? That's where you see how strong it is, that it holds us. We see the strength of a bridge, not when it's just standing firm, but when we catch 
or watch cars drive over the bridge, right? Semi-trucks drive over a bridge. You ever been on a bridge when like a, a large truck drives next to you and you can find, feel it shaking around you? Um, it's not a fun feeling, right? I hope it's strong enough, right? It tests the strength of the bridge. We see the strength of a person when we watch them exercise, right? Or, or lift weights. I've never been, this is probably surprising as you look at me, um, all that into weightlifting, all right? Um, this, is, this is natural, what you see before you, all right? Uh, but whenever I'm like, I'll flip channels and I'll see some of those strongman competitions, have you ever seen these? Like where the, I mean, just behemoth of men and they're picking up boulders and they're, they're flipping over these giant monster truck tires and you see the strength of them. They're able to hold like 10 people up by themselves. They carry a car, uh, they're pulling this truck with this huge uh, rope. It's impressive, right? You see the strength of the man. I think in the passage before us this morning, we see the strength of the Lord. And as you first read it, it almost sounds like weakness. And it looks like weakness as he prays, as he begs for the Father to remove this cup from him. It's not like Jesus is sitting in the garden, you know, bench pressing. We're not going to see his strength necessarily in the, in the physical form. We're going to see kingdom strength. The type of strength that's needed to overcome temptation, the kind of strength that's needed to submit to the will of the Father, the kind of strength necessary to stand firm in the face of evil. And we see this kind of strength from Christ in, in what he says, in what he prays, and how he responds to, to the darkness. And I, I want to kind of walk through this and focus our attention on Christ's strength for a couple different reasons. The first one is I think that in seeing the strength of Jesus, we'll see his supremacy, we'll see his glory, we'll see his greatness more clearly. And that's always good for us. It's always a good thing. It's always a good exercise for us to admire and look at the greatness of Christ because it knocks us down a few pegs. It increases our humility as believers. And unbelievers realize maybe I'm not quite as great as I think I am. And we see the greatness and supremacy and perfection of Jesus. And when we see his supremacy, when we see his glory, when we see his greatness, what do we do? We respond by worship. We worship him more fully and more passionately. and So that's kind of the pattern we see. We see him more clearly. We worship him more fully. Jesus Christ is strong. If you say, I already know Jesus is strong. I learned that in kindergarten Sunday school. That means you had a really good kindergarten Sunday school teacher. Okay, Jesus is strong. And this morning, I want to see the reality of his strength again as we work our way through this passage. And I hope it affects your mind and your understanding of the strength of Jesus. And then it motivates your heart and worship of Jesus. And not just this morning, but this week as well. Okay, Being a Christian is not a Sunday morning thing. It's not just a 9 a.m. on a Sunday morning. It's a seven days a week thing, a 24-hour a day thing. And it's the fuel that's needed to, to fuel your life of worship is the knowledge of who Jesus is. Our minds, what we understand about Jesus, fuels how we worship him. This morning, we're not trying to just get emotionally worked up over uh, lyrics and songs. We, 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 we get emotional. We get passionate in worship. Why? Because we know these things to be true. We've experienced them ourselves. We've studied and understand them logically and intellectually, which fuels our passion. So my hope this morning is that we see the strength of Jesus. We should never tire of hearing about how awesome Jesus is, how strong Jesus is. Why? Because then we start asking questions like, can I really trust him? And I know, yes, I can trust him. Absolutely, I can trust him. Why? Because he's strong. Does Jesus really love us? Yes, we see in this passage, he loves us. His love is strong. 
So I think it affects our minds, it affects our worship. The second reason for wanting to focus in this morning on the strength of Jesus is that my hope is in seeing this strength of Jesus, we would by faith seek to cultivate similar strength. That in our own hearts, in our own minds, in our own spiritual walks, we would have this Christ-like strength exemplified in our families, in our church, in our communities. And I think what's desperately needed in a church, in a, in a home, in our world today is the strength of Jesus. The strength that Christ demonstrates here in this passage. I need more of this strength. You need more of this strength. Our church needs more of this strength. And this is not a man-centered, self-exalting, strongman competition. This is the strength that comes from God to overcome temptation. The strength it takes to be able to pray, God, this is what I want, but your will be done. Kingdom strength. The strength to be able to stand up against what is a evil and dark world and speak the truth of what Jesus says, what his word says. If we want to be strong like this, if we want our children and our churches to be strong, we need to see Christ's strength, allow it to fuel our worship, and then by faith follow his example. We are desperately in need of husbands with this kind of strength, wives with this kind of strength, fathers and mothers and grandparents and children so that we'd have the strength not to give in to temptation, that we have the strength to submit to the Father's will and the strength to oppose evil. Okay, so let's walk through it, kind of follow that outline as we do. Okay, the first thing that I want us to look at this morning is I want us to see Jesus' strength in what he said to others. See Jesus' strength in what he said to others. Look at verse number 40. It says, when he came to the place, he said unto his disciples, pray that ye enter not into temptation. He'll say it again in verse 46 after he comes back and finds the disciples asleep. He'll say, why are you sleeping? Rise up and pray that you would not enter into temptation. Again, keep the reality front and center. Jesus is speaking in this passage while he is under immense suffering. Jesus is at this very night going to be betrayed by Judas. He's already talked about that uh, in the upper room there with the disciples. He's going to be walking into what we'll see in a few minutes, an intense emotional suffering, a physical suffering, a, a relational suffering. And in this moment, on the most difficult night of his life, he's telling his disciples, you guys need to pray that you wouldn't fall to temptation. We see his strength when things are hard. We see his strength when he is suffering. And Jesus knows that at this point, Judas is already meeting with these high priests. He's already meeting with these rulers. He's bringing them to him. And he tells his disciples, you guys need to pray. While he's preparing to lay down his life to save those disciples, to save us, what does he tell us? He says, pray that you won't enter into temptation. I think it shows the strength of his love for his people. Andrew, how does, how does him telling the disciples to pray that they wouldn't enter temptation, how does that show his love? Those of us who understand how desperately we need God to overcome temptation, how desperately we need the Spirit's help to allow us to resist temptation, how important it is in times of suffering and our trials and our difficulties and our pains that we're not looking inward for strength because we found that to be lacking. We're looking upward for strength. We're looking to Jesus for strength. We understand how loving it is for Jesus at this moment to call for his disciples to pray that they wouldn't enter temptation. This is our Savior on the hardest night of his life, the hardest night of his life, facing the cross, burdened not only about what he's going to endure, but burdened about how his followers will be facing temptation and unbelievable temptation that evening. Think about it, the, the very one who will intercede on their behalf, the one who last week we saw praying for Peter, Peter, I'm praying for you that your faith won't fail because Satan wants to sift you, that Jesus, 
is telling these disciples on this painful night, you guys need to pray. Pray for God's help when you face temptation. They're about to face an incredible evening. They probably don't even come close to understanding what they're about to face. Obviously, we know Peter doesn't because of his uh, statement we saw last week of, I'll never betray you, I'll never turn away from you. They don't understand the temptation they're going to face. But Jesus does. He says, you're going to need help. You need to pray. You need the strength of the Lord to carry you through these difficulties. Our Savior is thinking of others on the hardest night of his life. Maybe you had an experience like I have where you go to a hospital room, you're visiting someone or someone's sick or they're dying, and you walk in, and uh, it's always amazing to me the different personalities that play in those environments. It, it is amazing you walk into the room many times of a believer, and I'm walking in uh, you know, as, as their pastor to, to try and encourage them or bless them, and they're thinking about, hey, is pastor's chair comfortable enough, and do you need a water? And, you know, is there, is there a better place for you to sit? And how are you doing? And how are your kids? And I'm thinking, what, why are you worried at all about is my chair comfortable enough? Or if I need a water or how my kids are doing? Like, you're sick, right? You're suffering. There's this other-centeredness that's existing there. That's the same with what we're seeing in Jesus. That's fueled by a relationship with Jesus. Our Savior's thinking of other people. Like, you're, you're sick, and you're thinking of me. You're suffering, and you're thinking of me. In moments like that, we see something like what Christ was like on this night when he was betrayed. He is this other-centeredness that is based in the heart of Jesus. And by the way, while, while we're talking about this, this isn't really the point of the text, but far too many Christians view prayer as optional, okay? Jesus, on his final night, doesn't tell his disciples, hey, you know, temptation's gonna be there, so make sure that you're, um, dressed appropriately, and make sure that you're doing the right things, make sure you went to church on Sunday. He says, you need to pray. You need to pray. Sometimes as Christians, we view prayer as optional or prayer as a hobby that some Christians enjoy more than us. Prayer isn't woodworking. Prayer isn't hiking. Prayer isn't camping. Prayer isn't hunting. It's not fishing. Prayer is to be a priority for every believer, and it is absolutely necessary. He says, you're in a face temptation. What do, I, what do I do, Jesus? Pray. Pray that you wouldn't fall to temptation. You look at passages like we just studied in Luke 18 with that, that, that persistent widow, right, where Jesus says, you are always to pray and then pray some more and then pray some more and then pray some more and then keep praying some more. You look at Matthew 6, portion of the Lord's Prayer. Pray ye that you would not, that God would not lead us into temptation but to deliver us from evil, right, that God would help us. First Thessalonians chapter 5, pray without ceasing. The church is to be a praying people. Ephesians 6, where Paul tells the church, put on the armor of God, right? putting on the armor of God, but they're to be praying at all times in the spirit with all prayer and supplication. We're called to be praying people. So Jesus gives his disciples this command, hey, this is gonna be a difficult night and there's gonna be real temptation and battles that are coming. You guys need to pray. And because of the strength of Jesus' love for his disciples, he commands them to pray the night that he's betrayed. Now, most of us could all improve our prayer life a little bit, right? We could all pray more. We could all pray more passionately. Jesus, church, has a perfect understanding of prayer, a complete understanding, a complete correct theology of prayer. And what does he tell his disciples they need to do when they're about to face a most difficult night? Pray. Pray. And so, Christian, you want to be strong? You want to be a strong Christian? Obviously, the right answer is yes, right? We want to be strong Christians. That's a good answer. That's not arrogant. I want to be a strong Christian. What do we do? We pray. We pray. 
We pray for strength to follow Christ's instructions. We pray for strength to resist temptation. You're a Christian man in the room. Are you praying when you're tempted? If you're married, are you praying for your spouse? If you have children, are you praying for your children? Are you crying out for your kids like Job cried out for the sake of his kids? Are you praying that God would protect them, that God would strengthen them, that God would, make, that God would become their hope and their treasure and their satisfaction? Are we praying? If not, why not? This is what strong Christians do. We're going to be strong. We're going to be prayers. This is what strong Christians do. They pray acknowledging that they are not in and of themselves strong enough to resist temptation. They're not strong enough to be faithful and that they are in desperate need of God's help. It's what strong men do. It's what strong, obviously strong women, strong Christian children. But especially this morning, I want to talk to the Christian husbands and fathers because we are called especially in the writings of Paul to be like Christ in this way. That in a unique way, you are called to love your wife like Christ loved the church, protecting her, providing for her, being willing to lay down your own life for her. And what else does Christ do for his church? We've seen it throughout the Gospel of Luke. We see it here again. He prays. He prays. And so if you want to be like Christ, you want to be a strong Christian man, then you must pray too. You must pray too. So we see the strength of Jesus in what he says to others on this final night. Number two, we see Jesus' strength in how he prays for himself. Not just in what he tells his followers to do, to pray that you wouldn't fall to temptation. Now let's look at how he actually lives this out in his own walk. Let's look at verse 41. And he was withdrawn from them by a stone's throw and kneeled down and prayed, saying, Father, if thou be willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but thine be done. When reading Jesus' prayer, you might think that sounds weak. I mean, Christian men, Jewish men at this point, didn't really pray on their knees. They prayed arms up, facing heaven. It's kind of how Jewish men would pray in the temple. Jesus has been driven to his knees. He, he's broken. He's, he's humbled. He doesn't say, Father, I praise you for giving me this cross to bear. I thank you for, make, for calling me to this. I, I'm good. I'm strong enough. Thanks for trusting me with this, Father, this cross, Father. I'm ready for it. What does he pray? He says, God, if there, Father, if there's any other way, If the Father is willing, would you remove this cup from me? This cup he's talking about is the fullness of the wrath of God. We see that throughout Scripture. That This is the entirety of the judgment and wrath of God to be poured out on sin, on evil, on wickedness. And that cup is what Jesus is staring into at this moment. That's what is waiting for him at the cross, is the fullness of the wrath of God to be poured out on him. And he looks into that, and it, it terrifies him. We read in other passages that he's in agony. There's literally like physical anxiety coming over Jesus at this point, looking into what is the fullness of the judgment of God. It seems like the heaviness of this burden has brought Jesus to his knees, which in our context doesn't necessarily seem like strength. But I think this is a beautiful display of Jesus' strength because it doesn't just detail Jesus' divinity. It shows us Jesus' humanity being not only truly 100% God, but also truly 100% man, that Jesus Christ endured the weakness of a human body in this world. Jesus had a human body like ours. They got tired. They got hungry. They felt pain. A physical body that would just a few short hours from this point feel 
the full force of God's wrath for sin and evil and brokenness. This is not a happy thought. This is not an easy thing that Jesus is walking into. This is why Jesus is crying out in agony. Because what's going to happen, Galatians chapter 3 says, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming cursed for us. Because it's written, anyone who hangs on a tree is cursed, right? Jesus is going to be cursed by the Father so that we could receive blessing. He's going to be cursed by the one that he has existed in perfect unity with since the very beginning of time. He knew he would be forsaken for us. He knew the physical torments that were waiting for him. He knew the heaviness and the sorrow. It was real. It wasn't an overreaction. Jesus wasn't overthinking it. You ever taken your kids to the doctor, or maybe yourself if you're scared of needles, right? You go to the doctor and you, they, the first question my kids ask is, do I have to get a shot, right? First question they always ask whenever we're gonna go, are they gonna poke me or are they give me a shot? Because if so, the little, in their little bodies, anxiety starts building, right? Like they're waiting the whole time. They're in the waiting room. There's toys. They're not touching the toy, right? They're thinking the whole time, when is this gonna happen? They're thinking, they're sweating, they're nervous. And they get in the room, they're still feeling panicky, they don't pay attention to anything until finally the shot happens and it's over in 0.3 seconds, right? And at the end of it, they're like, oh, that, that maybe I overthought that a little bit, right? Maybe I overreacted just a tad. If you're really scared of needles, you say, I didn't overreact at all, right? That was the reality of it. But what Christ does here is not an overreaction. He's not dreading something that's not going to be that bad. He's not fearful of something that in reality will be far less painful or more, less suffering than he thought he would experience. He has a full understanding of what's to come. Isaiah 53 foretells for us what Jesus would endure. Surely he hath borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we did esteem him stricken and smitten of God and afflicted. He was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon him, and with his stripes we are healed. Jesus knows what's coming. He's fully aware of what's going to take place. He went to the cross, and he's grappling being truly God and also truly human with this reality of what his body was going to experience, with the reality of the relational distance between his father and him that never once occurred. And some of us can relate to that if you have a distant relationship and maybe an estrangement in your family because of someone's decision or words or things that were said. We know the sorrow that's associated with that. We know the agony that's associated with families being separated from one another. And yet Jesus is not deserving of this. Usually those things are results of sin and brokenness and pride and anger and dissolves relationships. Jesus never once sinned. He didn't deserve to experience that kind of separation. He didn't deserve to experience that kind of agony. He did it for us because we deserved it. The agony that we're seeing here, by the way, Christian in the garden, is what you and I would experience if Jesus hadn't submitted to the Father's will. This is the suffering that we deserve. And if you're not a Christian this morning, this agony is foreshadows the agony that awaits those who aren't in Christ. It was this sorrowful, painful agony of what Jesus was facing that led Jesus to pray, Father, if there's any other way, if you're willing, let this cup pass from me. But that's not where the prayer ends, is it? He continues the prayer. He says, nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. You see the strength of Jesus, the humanity of Jesus, fully aware of what's coming, and the strength of Jesus and his commitment to the will of the Father. This is also a repeat that comes from the Lord's Prayer, Matthew chapter 6, verse 10, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. This is strength. 
This is strength. Despite what he will endure, despite what was coming, Christ was committed to submitting his will to the Father's will. He trusts the Father. He knows that the Heavenly Father, despite the sorrow and the pain that he will soon endure, that his Father's will is best. This morning we echo that. There is no better will than the will of the Father. There is no better will, no better plan than the plan of God. What strength Jesus shows here. What strength Jesus demonstrates here to say, I'm going to be crushed. I will endure this because I trust my Father. To know what was coming the next day. To know that in a short time, that though innocent, he would be arrested and wrongly charged and declared guilty, handed over to the Romans, rejected by his people, abandoned by his disciples, nailed to the cross, hung up to die like an animal, that he would be mocked and laughed at and shamed, the separation he would experience from the Father, and yet he prays, Father, not my will, but yours be done. That's strong. Strong. This is the strength of Jesus. Those are strong words, words full of faith, words full of trust in the Father and his plan, and words that once again display the love of Jesus, his love for his people, his love for you, his love for me. So he prays three times, we see, throughout the Gospels. Father, if there's any other way, let this cup pass for me. Let this cup pass for me. Let this cup pass for me. By the way, study the Gospels. Has there ever been another prayer that Jesus prayed that hadn't been answered? This is the only one we see. Isaiah 51 tells us there is no other way. Isaiah 51 describes God's wrath against our sin as like a toxic poison kept in a cup. As that cup is offered to us, Jesus steps in the way and drinks it for us. Jonathan Edwards described the wrath of God like a dam breaking, the explosion of water that comes through. I was like Spurgeon who compared it to a gnat being run over by a freight train. Right, the wrath of God that's poured out on us. And if you had been there and you walked up and said, no, 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 Jesus, try to stop him from doing what he had to be done, he'd say, no, this, is, this cup is your cup. This cup, there is no other way. Our salvation was something that only Jesus could accomplish. Jonathan Edwards asked the question, why, why would the Father show this cup to Jesus like this? Why would he reveal it to him of what's to come? That seems kind of cruel, doesn't it, to tell him what's going to happen and to plant it within his heart, the understanding what if seeing these things made Jesus want to back out? Right, was the Father being risky in this? Why not wait until Jesus was nailed to the cross to, to show him all that was going to happen? And I love his answer. He said it was so that we could see Jesus go to the cross voluntarily, knowing full well what he was about to experience, so that his love for us would be put on even greater display. It was so we could see the extent of the price he was willing to pay to redeem us. What does Romans 5, 8 says? God commendeth, God demonstrated, God showed his love for us and that while we were yet sinners, he died for us. We see in this passage, it says an angel comes to minister to Jesus. I always wonder, what, what was that conversation like? Like, well, what did, the, what did the angel say? Did he hand him a, you know, a Christian book on suffering? Like, I don't know what he handed him, what, what he encouraged him with, right? We don't know. What we do know from the writer of Hebrews is that when Jesus got up, from this moment, he has to be betrayed and go to the cross. It says he does it with joy. The joy that was set before him, he endured the cross. So something shifts here in this prayer. Now, what had been set before him, if you read Hebrews? What did Jesus see that was going to make going to the cross, quote-unquote, worth it? 
And the question we have is, what is the only thing that Jesus would gain on the other side of the cross that he would not have on this side? There's only one thing, you and me. First John chapter 3, behold what manner of love the Father has bestowed upon us that we should be called the sons of God. This is the love of Jesus. What's the old hymn say? I stand amazed in the presence of Jesus the Nazarene and wonder how he could love me, a sinner condemned, unclean. For me it was in the garden he prayed, not my will, but thine. He had no tears for his own griefs, but sweat drops of blood for mine. He took my sin and my sorrow. He made them his very own. And he bore my burden to Calvary and suffered and died alone. There was no other way to save us. This was the only way. He prayed, Father, if there is another way, show it to me, right? Let this cup pass from me, yet not my will but thine be done. And he did it. He did it gladly with joy. And can you think honestly just for a second, can you think of any other greater insult to this kind of love and any other greater insult to Jesus than to say there really are multiple ways to salvation? Jesus, thanks for doing this, but there's probably another way too. Jesus, thanks for willingly receiving the sacrifice that I deserve. Thanks for drinking this cup of God's wrath, but you can also be a pretty good person to make your way there too. So I wish they would have told you that, Jesus, that there's multiple ways. I wish they would have told you that there's multiple paths, that if you're sincere in your heart and you follow a God that you think is real, that somehow you're going to make it there. How disrespectful, how insulting to the love and sacrifice of Jesus. And I know when we say those things, we think we're being compassionate and open-minded. When we say there's multiple views to God and you put a coexist bumper sticker on your car, but there is there any greater insult to Jesus that Jesus looked at God the Father and said, if there's any other way, if there's any other way, let this cup pass from me. And the Father just held back, oh yeah, actually there's lots of other ways. Sometimes we act like we're more loving than Jesus is. Stop arguing and stand amazed at the love of Jesus. This is not a time and a moment for us to speculate and get all philosophical about how we would have done or how we could have made a way or what path we could have provided. It's time for us to humbly receive that there is a path that Jesus paid for and to walk down it. This passage shows you the incredible love that Jesus has for us, the strength of Jesus' love for us. He is a strong Savior. And his love for us is strong, and you know that because he says, not my will, but yours be done. We can learn from this, too. You want to be strong? It starts with believing the gospel that I am not strong enough to save myself, that I need Jesus, the strong one who lived a sinful life and died in my place for my sins, was raised from the dead. I need to believe that Jesus is strong enough to save me to rep- when I repent and trust in him, that he'll forgive me when I submit to God's will, submit to God's plan that he'll follow through. That's what true strength looks like, is, is trust and faith in Jesus. But then there's another moment where after I place my faith and trust in Jesus, where many times we're going to have to pray the same prayer of not my will, but yours be done. Where we say, Jesus, if there's any other way, if there's any other way, this is my hope, this is my dream, this is what I want, this is my, my plans, my desires, but at the end, Jesus, it's not my will I want, I want your will. Your will be done. God, I want what you want. This is a a constant decision. I have things that I want to do, things that I want to be involved in, but God might call me to give up some of those things. 
you know, men in the room, I, I'm picking on the guys today, I'm sorry. It's because I didn't get to talk yesterday at the breakfast, so I'm just rolling it over into this, you know. Man, if you're in the room and you're married, your strength will be demonstrated by your sacrifice and love for your family. It might mean giving up some things. Like sin or other good things just that aren't that important anymore. It might look like setting aside some hobbies that aren't sinful, but Christ calls me to lead my wife better and to give myself to her and to love her like Christ loves the church. You're going to be strong then pray, not my will, not what I want, Jesus, I want what you want. Not my, what my will be done, I want your will. And then mean it and live like that and live in light of it. That's what we need to be men strong like Christ, submitting to the will of the Father. Again, this strength applies to every believer. You're in the room and you're single, you're married, you're a kid, you're an adult. This strength of God, not what I want, God, what you want. That strength necessary to deny evil in a culture that glorifies and celebrates it. That's gonna take strength that comes from a relationship with God. Those who believe that God's will, God's word is true, that sin leads to death. That for those in our families, those that we love, that sin they're committing is gonna lead to their ultimate destruction. We need to be courageous, have the strength enough not to say, you know what, Jesus, not my will, but yours be done. I'll speak. We need the strength to be willing to, to set aside ourselves, rearrange our goals from careers and dreams for the sake of Jesus, for the sake of his people. A true willingness to align my life with Jesus. We need more men and women and Christians praying, God, not my will be done, but yours. We see the strength of Jesus and what he says to his disciples, pray that you won't enter temptation. We see the strength of Jesus, how he prays for himself. Father, if there's any other way, nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. And number three, let's see Jesus' strength and his response to evil. Verse 47, while he yet spake, behold, a multitude, he that was called Judas, one of the 12 went before him and drew near unto Jesus to kiss him. So while facing the heaviness of what he was going to endure, while facing the difficulty and the, 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 the agony of what he's about to face, he returns to find his best friends asleep, right? You ever had a not good surprise, right? Like uh, there's good surprises out there. There's not good surprises, right? Man, I, these guys are probably praying with me back there and you come back and they're all asleep, right? Um, they're not with him. This is that point. Judas, and he's approached by a crowd led by one of his followers, Judas Iscariot. The hardest night of his life, fully aware of what he's about to face, and here are the men that he has poured himself into over the last three years. Ten of them are sleeping, and Wilhelm's about to betray him. Doesn't lose heart, continues to move forward. When Judas approaches him, he kisses him which, by the way, was but a bit of greeting of, of love. It would have been what you do, in, like, thankfully in this culture, we don't currently continue to do that. Uh, some of the real Italians in the room, you're, you're still going with that tradition, but nobody likes it, man, all right? So just, <laughs> we can stop that. I'm just gonna speak for everyone else in the room. We'll, we'll let that go in the past, all right? Um, no, but you see someone at church you love, right? You give them a hug, right? It's a sign of friendship. It's a sign of love. It's a sign of compassion. We love one another in that way. A kiss would have been a very common way to greet a family member or, or a friend or a loved ones. It's how we greet one another in the same way of a hug now. So it's a compassionate display. Just imagine knowing that someone is betraying you and they come up and give you a hug. Knowing that someone's about to deliver you up to the enemy, someone's about to deliver you up to what will be this suffering and this pain and this persecution, this, this sacrifice you're willing to lay down. They hug, come up and give you a big hug right before it. 
the betrayal of what's going on in the life of Jesus at this point. It displays Judas's character, right? He's a betrayer. His lack of true faith reveals a sinful heart. Look how Jesus responds in verse 48. Does he run away? Does he hide? Jesus says to him, Judas, do you betray the Son of Man with a kiss? This is our Savior's response to the power of darkness. He doesn't back down. He doesn't run away. He steps up. He goes forward. Calls him by his name. Doesn't act like, oh, I don't know who this guy is, right? Judas, are you here to betray me? He moves forward into danger. I'm reminded this morning of the, the weekend we have to celebrate, of the bravery of those who move forward into danger. And this is what we see from Jesus that night in the garden. We see his strength in telling disciples to, to put away their swords. When Peter brings out the sword and chops off the dude's ear, Jesus says, that's not how it's going to go forward. And all the kids love that part in the passage the guy's ear gets chopped off. But the cooler part is that Jesus puts the ear back on. The healing power of Jesus. The Lord is not going to be protected this night by his disciples from what was to come. He's already submitted to the will of the Father. He's already allowed this to take place. We see his strength as he speaks to this opposition. Verse number 52, then said Jesus and the chief priest and the captains of the temple and the elders which were come to him. I love this. Do you come out again as a thief with swords and staves? When I was with you in the temple, you stretched forth no hands against me. In other words, I, I was, you saw me yesterday and you didn't have the pitchforks and the torches. You saw me yesterday and we debated back and forth about the, the realities of, of scripture and about who's you know, who God is like. We, we talked about these things, and now you're coming out, and he says, well, this is because this is your hour. This is the power of darkness that's at work here. These men, in a very worldly sense, have the power to arrest Jesus, but Jesus knows that he's not ultimately submitting to their power. I love this. He's not backed down to their darkness. He calls out their wickedness. He calls out their sinfulness, that they are lawbreakers, not him. Christ is not a thief, he says. He has not stolen anything. He's no criminal. He's come to give his life as a ransom for sin. But here these, these evil men, these wicked guys are coming under the cover of darkness. They're cowards. They're coming away from the crowds to secretly arrest Jesus. And I see we see the strength of Jesus in standing up to the darkness, standing up to the power. Now it's different. Because these guys are going to lie and they're going to malign. They're going to deceive. They're going to ambush. They're going to do everything they can against Jesus. Darkness seeks to do this. This is what people who hate Christ, who reject the gospel, this is what they're going to do. They're going to go forward. But how do the followers of Christ respond? Well, we have to oppose evil. We are called in Scripture to oppose that which is wrong. We must speak up. We must speak the truth. We have to say that Jesus is Lord, not Caesar or the state or a dictator. Jesus is Lord. We have to proclaim the truth, but we do it differently. This is kingdom power. When it comes to believers extending the kingdom of God, that happens not by the power of the sword like Peter thought it would. It doesn't come on the back of the power of talent or the power of money. It comes by a greater power. We extend the kingdom by the power of the cross. You go back to any great movement of God in history, and you'll see people who embrace sacrifice, who embrace the path of the cross. This is God's way of releasing power of releasing the power of God into our world. You'll see people who, not the, the kingdom of God goes forward, not through superior riches, but through the power of the cross, which is why we say often here, God doesn't need your money. God is not sitting in heaven thinking, oh, if I only had their money, then my power would go forward. If I only had their generosity. What God will use is sacrificial 
grace-based, worshipful giving. We saw that a few weeks ago, the woman with two mites, right? That that's true generosity. Don't flatter yourself. You have enough money to make a difference. It's not your money. In another passage, Jesus tells his disciples, you think I need your sword? I've got 12 legions of angels on speed dial. I don't need your sword. I don't need your money. He, and he won't bless your sacrifice. He won't bless your money and multiply it with his power if it doesn't represent sacrifice. God calls us to live lives of generosity, of real sacrifice. 1956, you guys might know the story of Jim Elliott, Nate Saint. If you don't, you should pick up their biography and read it. 1956, these guys spent quite a few years trying to um, get to these Alka Indians in Ecuador. And they, they, they researched, they studied, they tried to figure out their way in. Really violent group. The first meeting, they flew in, it went really well. They got to meet the different natives there, and the, they felt like there was a lot of progress going forward. The second meeting, these guys fly in on their airplane on January 8, 1956, and they're met not with applause, but with warriors of the Indian tribe who ultimately killed them, stabbed them with spears, left their bodies floating in the river. And the story is a really pretty ending, by the way, if, I, if you don't know about it. The few years later, the, the men's wives and children continue to try to go back. The widows and the, the children who are left behind continue to go back to these Indians. They reestablished contact. They built schools. They built hospitals. They cared for those who were there. They taught them the Bible. Uh, one of the men's name was Nate Saint. His son, Steve Saint, led to Christ and baptized the man that killed his father. And they kind of adopted him into their family as like an adopted grandfather. And they viewed him as a grandfather, even though he was the one who took the life of their actual grandfather. It's a beautiful story. But here's a part of the story that most people don't know. The moment that they were mur murdered, Jim Elliott, Nate Saint, all of his friends, they were armed. They had loaded guns with them. But then when they recovered their bodies, they saw that not a single shot had been fired in self-defense. In fact, they discovered a journal from Jim Elliott that recorded several days before that the men had gathered together and they decided they would never fire a weapon at these natives. And Steve Saint later explained it, said, my dad knew that if he died, he would go to heaven. And he knew that if the men attacking him died, they wouldn't go to heaven. So he did for them what Jesus did for him. When it came to the hour of decision, he decided not to take life, but to offer his. The church, the true church, followers of Jesus, it is built not through power of the sword, is built through the power of the cross. I'll give you another story. A guy named Branch Rickey uh, told Jackie Robinson when Jackie was going through all the suffering of the, the early kind of integration days in baseball. And he said, you're going to you're gonna have to have the strength not to fight back against all this bigotry and racism and at least not to fight hate with hate. And he explained, because then Jackie could show the world that there was someone, capital S, behind his cause. And ultimately that spirit turned the tide in, in that story. But in short, by pulling out the sword, Peter shows that he doesn't get real strength. He doesn't get the cross. And in that way, ironically, there's a lot of similarities between Peter and Judas. Peter and Judas look at first like they're on opposite sides in the story, don't they? Judas betrays Peter. Peter defends Jesus. But they actually suffer from the same core problem. They both think that suffering is incompatible with the mission of Jesus. Neither one of them understands that suffering is central to the mission of Jesus. Judas wanted to see Jesus go to the cross to get rid of him. Peter wants Jesus to avoid the cross to protect him. 
Both men are clueless that the cross is why Jesus came. Jesus had to take the cup of God's wrath. He didn't come to wield the sword, but to step under it. And it was the only way. Truth of salvation is not something that we can ever achieve, but something that we receive. And again, please don't say the silly, really popular thing that all religions basically teach the same thing. They don't. Christianity turns religion on its head. Christianity says salvation, forgiveness, is not something that we earn or achieve. It is something we receive as a gift. Jesus went to the garden so that he could purchase salvation for you, so that he could drink your cup, so that he could bear the sword that was reserved for me. Have I received that? He walked in the garden for me. Well, I take the step back towards him. And I really do hope this morning that we see Christ's strength more clearly by looking at what he said. Brothers, pray that you won't enter in temptation. Look at what he prayed. Father, not my will, but yours be done. And looking at how he responded to the power of darkness with love and with sacrifice, with truth, but not with the sword, but with the power of the cross. It screams of his strength. It displays his strengths. And that my hope this morning, when we look at his supremacy, we look at his glory, we look at his power, that more clearly my heart would respond by worshiping him more fully, that this November season, I'm kind of focusing on that gratitude, my heart is filled with gratefulness, for the sacrifice that Jesus has made for me. And I hope this morning that in seeing the strength of Jesus, we also would pray, God, would you cultivate some of that other-centered strength in me, that Christ-like strength in my life, to pray knowing that I can't resist temptation on my own, to pray when my will and God's will don't match up, that God, your will be done, and to pray to have the courage and the strength to stand for truth, but not to the power of the sword and domination, but to the power of the cross and sacrifice. Let's pray together. Lord, we...